Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Douglas and Sarah Allison Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our heritage.org website on all of these occasions. For our in-house guests, we would ask that last courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, those watching online are welcome to send questions or comments at any time, simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And we will, of course, post today's program on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference as well. Leading our discussion is John Malcolm, who serves in three capacities at Heritage. He's vice president for our Constitutional Government Institute. He's director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. And he serves as the Ed Gilbertson and Sherry Lindbergh Gilbertson Senior Legal Fellow. Prior to joining us here at Heritage, he was a deputy assistant attorney general in the criminal division at DOJ. He has been executive vice president at the Motion Picture Association of America, as well as the general counsel of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Please join me in welcoming John Malcolm. John. Thank you very much, John, and uh, welcome to Heritage, to our annual Scholars and Scribes review of the recently completed uh, Supreme Court term. Uh, one problem that we have is that we don't have any scribes. Uh, in light of last night's uh, Supreme Court announcement, which we'll all discuss with our scholars, uh, Adam Liptak, Jess Braven, and Ariana DeVogue have been ordered by their publishers uh, to be chained to their desk to get reaction to the nominee. Uh, however, I'm very grateful to say that our scholars have agreed to uh, step up to the plate, if you will, and extend their time from 60 minutes uh, to 90 minutes, which will give us more time to talk about uh, all of the issues that uh, we need to discuss. Uh, so we obviously have a lot of issues to talk about. Uh, so even with the extended time for our scholars panel, we'll only be able to cover a few of the key decisions uh, of the term. And of course, I want to spend a bit of time uh, talking about the new nominee uh, and the upcoming confirmation fight. So I want to get uh, right to it and will therefore keep my introductions brief uh, believe me, way briefer than each of our scholars deserves. Uh, so we are honored to have with us today uh, three very distinguished Supreme Court litigators. Uh, to my far left is Neil Kachal. Uh, Neil is a partner at the firm of Hogan Lovells. He's a graduate of Yale Law School, and after that he clerked for Guido Calabrese on the Second Cir Circuit and Justice Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court. Uh, during the Obama administration, he served as a senior advisor uh, to the Deputy Attorney General and then served as the Acting Solicitor General of the United States. He has argued 37 cases before the Supreme Court, including this past term's travel ban case, which we will, of course, discuss. He teaches law at Georgetown Law School and has 
also been a visiting professor uh, at Harvard Law School and Yale Law School. And among the many honors that he has received over the course of his career, he was recently named Litigator of the Year for 2017 by American Lawyer Magazine. Uh, next to uh, Neil is John Elwood. John is a partner at the firm of Vincent and Elkins. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School. He then clerked for John Mahoney on the Second Circuit and Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. He is also a DOJ veteran, having spent time in the Criminal Division, the Office of Legal Counsel, and also in the Solicitor General's Office. John has argued nine cases uh, before the Supreme Court. Uh, and among his many awards, he has been praised by Chambers USA, which described him as phenomenal, a brilliant writer, and a much-loved and widely respected lawyer who is quick on his feet. Next to John is Willie Jay, who is a partner at Goodwin Proctor. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School as well, and following that, he clerked for Durham Scanlon on the Ninth Circuit, and then Justice Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. He also spent time at DOJ as an assistant to the Solicitor General, and has argued 16 cases before the Supreme Court. And like John Elwood, he has received numerous awards, and has also been described by Chambers USA as, quote, a rocket scientist whose spectacular brief writing and keen and analytical mind mark him out as a rising star at the appellate bar. So now I will resume my seat and we'll start talking about the cases. So Neil, let's start with you and uh, get right to the, the travel ban case, which is a case that you, uh, you argued. If you could uh, describe a little bit about what the case was all about and your impressions. Okay, great. First of all, um, I want to Thank you for having me here. This is my, I've been doing this event a bunch of times and I love it. So it's, it's great to be here with all of you and also with, with these two. I mean, Willie is, I think, maybe the best brief writer in the business. He's just incredibly clear. Um, and John is a fabulous, fabulous oral advocate. So it's really great to be here. And, and as you can see, I'm just kind of stalling because I don't really want to talk about the travel ban. <laughs> it's still a little too painful. So maybe before doing that, I'm going to just give you a little bit of an overview of the term and some numbers, and then we'll get into the, into the travel ban. So Justice Ginsburg last year uh, said, quote, one can safely predict that next term will be a momentous one. And I think the cases that you're going to hear about today, travel ban, cake shop, you know, redistricting, uh, all these different cases really do underscore it. It was a very, very big term. Numerically, it wasn't. There were only 60 cases decided, which is a really, really historically very, very low number. But in terms of what they decided, it was a big deal. And it was also a big deal because I think the Roberts court, for ever since his confirmation hearing, he's really tried to steer the court toward unanimity wherever possible. I think three years ago, they agreed two-thirds of the time, 9-0 decisions, two-thirds of the time. And you'd have to go back to the year 1940 to find a similar example. Or two terms ago, it was 59% agreement. Um, but this term was not like that. This term, the rate of unanimity was only uh, was only 39%. And you'd have to go back to the year 2008 to find a similarly low rate of unanimity. So definitely the court was divided. They were divided along kind of somewhat predictable lines. Um, so we've seen these kind of voting lineups in the past of who agrees the most and who disagrees the most with each other. It just happened a lot more this term. So Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor agreed 95.8% of the time and Justices Thomas and Alito agreeing 93% of the time. But Justice Sotomayor and Alito disagreed 49.3% of the time, and Sotomayor and Thomas 50.7% uh, of the time. 
Um, so you do really see, I think this term just in the data shows um, some pretty stark things. I think we, some of the things stayed the same, like Justice Thomas continued his tradition of writing the most opinions, um, which I think, you know, there's some, you know, particularly along the left, like, oh, this guy is not up to the job or something. I mean, every year writing these incredibly detailed um, opinions uh, separately often, so 31 opinions this time compared to Justice Kagan's uh, nine opinions uh, that she wrote. I don't think numbers necessarily tells you too much, but I mean, to the extent anyone is saying, like, you know, some justice is not working or something like that, that's obviously not the case. There's just one other number I'd like to just give you before I get to the travel ban, and that's just um, the number of women who argued at the Supreme Court this year, because it is, some of you saw Judge Kavanaugh's remarks yesterday, and he went out of his way to talk about something which I've really noticed in his hiring patterns, which is that he does hire a lot of women, uh, female clerks. Um, and ultimately, I do think these numbers will start to change the demographics of who's at the lectern at the Supreme Court. Um, but last term, uh, you know, women argued 19 times, which was 12% of all arguments. Um, and if you take out the Solicitor General's office, 9% of all arguments. So I think, you know, regardless of where one sits about Judge Kavanaugh in terms of his confirmation, his practices are really a model for um, for folks. Okay, the travel ban. Um, December 7th, 2015, President Trump says, quote, I, Donald J. Trump, call for a complete and total shutdown of all Muslim immigration to the United States. Uh, that first weekend on, on Friday, um, January 26th, I think, uh, the travel ban, the first one was issued, um, and we all saw the chaos at the airports that unfolded. That was immediately challenged and enjoined, um, and, uh, and the president um, then decided to pull that back and issue a different travel ban in March. That was then challenged again, um, and uh, the district court enjoined it, the Ninth Circuit enjoined it. It was then certiorari was granted. The Solicitor General asked for that. Um, and the uh, Supreme Court granted certiorari, I think, in, in May, um, with an argument set for October 10th. But two weeks before, on September 24th, uh, the travel ban two had expired, and a travel ban three was introduced. And the Solicitor General told the Supreme Court that case is now moot. Um, and it should be removed from the docket, which the Supreme Court did. Travel ban three was then challenged. Uh, you know, I challenged it for the state of Hawaii, along with a mosque in Hawaii and some other individual plaintiffs. That was again enjoined by the district court, enjoined by the circuit court, but in a five to four decision, the Supreme Court upheld uh, the travel ban, at least at this preliminary stage, um, in terms of the litigation. And so, you know, there's basically two kinds of, two issues that are in the travel ban. One is statutory and one is constitutional. Uh, the statutory issue is, is basically, it breaks down into two different things. Number one, uh, there is a broad statute, 1182F. And did Congress give the president the power, essentially, under that to enact something like the travel ban? Here's what it says. Whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may, by proclamation, and for such period as he deems necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants. And what we argued is, yes, that's really broad. 
but it doesn't allow the president to countermand the judgment of Congress. And if Congress has determined that this particular class of aliens can come in or be subject to individualized vetting or something like that, that that was enough. Uh, in a five to four opinion, the Chief Justice rejected that um, and said that Congress uh, you know, had given broad authority and that Congress hadn't specifically thought about this, the, uh, the, the situation here uh, of eight potential countries that didn't have adequate vetting procedures uh, and the like. There was a second challenge that we made to that, which is even if the president has that 1182 authority, a separate statute, 1152, forbids discrimination in the issuance of visas. That was part of the landmark 1965 Act, which kind of got rid of the whole country quota system and moved the system into, uh, in, into thinking about individuals, not on the basis of nationality. And the court there said, well, that's really about uh, the about the applications for immigrant visas, but the president could still deny entry to people who had visas. We had argued, you know, that would effectively undo the 65 Act because the president could then reenact the national quota system by just doing it at the entry side as opposed to the visa side. Uh, and, the, and the court said, well, that's a well-found distinction in immigration law and uh, Congress used specific language here. It was only about the issuance of visas. It wasn't about entry. And if Congress wanted to say something more broadly, they would have said so. So that's the statutory arguments. And then there's the constitutional argument. Uh, the First Amendment forbids the establishment of religion. The Supreme Court has said many times that that also means the forbids the establishment of a disfavored religion. And what we argued based on the president's statements as president um, was that, uh, that this was effectively a Muslim ban. In, a, in the Chief Justice's opinion, he said basically, you know, that, uh, the, that the law was, excuse me, the proclamation was facially neutral. And because it was facially neutral, one shouldn't really go behind uh, to examine other things, uh, particularly as long as it met the rational basis test. And so as long as there was some relationship between what the executive order or proclamation was seeking to do and its actual operation, that was enough. That obviously led to some dissents. Um, I think the strongest one written by Justice Otomayor, which said uh, effectively, you know, you are, you know, whitewashing the record and you got to look majority at the entire record. You've only provided some of it. And when you look at that record, it's very clear what's going on um, in, in the case. Uh, Justice Breyer wrote a separate concurrence saying that uh, that based on the record as he had it, he wasn't totally sure that it was unconstitutional or violated the statutes, but at the preliminary stage he would say, he would err on the side that it was, particularly because the arguments that the majority was using to try and temper the travel ban, like the existence of a waiver process, there's a provision in the proclamation that says if you're subject to the travel ban, you can get a waiver. Uh, Justice Breyer said all of the empirical evidence suggests very few people are getting these waivers and so on, and he wanted additional uh, proceedings to take place in the district court, which he said the majority's opinion leaves intact. Justice Kennedy wrote a two-page concurrence, also suggesting that there were further opportunities in the lower court to examine these issues about the waiver process, about discrimination uh, against Muslims and the like. And so, um, you know, that's basically the travel ban case. Well, so I want to ask Willie and John whether they have anything that they want to add, uh, but where does the case go from here? 
you know, we are reviewing the decision pretty closely, um, and obviously a lot of justices in the uh, in the case said that there were further proceedings that they contemplated. So we're trying to know understand and exactly you know it's a, a little bit it's a complicated opinion so we want to try and take the court's lead very clo very closely um, so we haven't committed anything at this point that's one ad the only thing I'll say is uh, that it did it did strike me that the court or at least the uh, majority uh, thought was very concerned about uh, tying future president's hands and I had that sense both at the time and especially after reading the opinion I also was struck as somebody, you know, who worked in the uh, Bush Justice Department. Uh, you know, the uh, the Bush Justice Department, w you know, was uh, had its knuckles wrapped a number of times on national security issues, and I was struck that uh, the Trump administration had a better outing uh, than we did. <laughs> I was interested that Justice Breyer's separate opinion wound up being styled as a dissent, and you know, basically at the very end, he says. If you don't agree with all of the things that I've said about, you know, what the uh, waiver process might, you know, uh, how the waiver process might be being applied, uh, for if I have to pick, I will pick the uh, view expressed by the two primary dissenters, Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg. Uh, one of the things I think we're going to come back to over the course of this discussion this morning is how much unanimity there was on the left side of the court, or how, how much you know, uh, broad agreement there was on the left side of the court. And while Justice Breyer has in past terms sometimes tried to steer a middle course, and we're going to talk about the cake shop case next, uh, you know, this was a case in which the liberal justices all wound up voting against the administration, which I think, you know, uh, while, Neil, you obviously did not win the case, I would say that you maybe beat the spread after oral argument, because uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that that's what uh, some of the less informed but very opinionated commentators were saying after, uh, after argument. All right. Well, let's. Uh, you, you made reference just now, Willie, to uh, cases in which the left it was unclear how how united they were, and so let's let's go right to Jack Phillips, the Colorado baker. Sure. So, uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, was a case that I think was one of the reasons that the term was described as one that was going to be momentous, and I would say that it wound up being sort of lowmentous in this case. Uh, and we will talk later, if there's time, about gerrymandering, in which it was sort of nomentous. Um, uh, uh, this case came out of the Colorado state courts, and it involves the application of Colorado's public accommodation discrimination statute, which says that if you are a public accommodation, which includes bakeries, uh, retail establishments, uh, that you may not discriminate in the offering of goods and services uh, on various grounds, including, at the time, sexual orientation. Uh, I should note that this was before Colorado uh, recognized same-sex marriage, but it, it had already changed its public accommodation discrimination statute to preclude discrimination based on sexual orientation. And the baker in this case, Jack Phillips, the proprietor of Masterpiece Cake Shop, is a cake artist. He makes custom cakes in addition to uh, a lot of things that are on display in his shop. Um, and a same-sex couple uh, came in asking for a wedding cake, and he declined to make a wedding cake for them. There's, there's a lot of disagreement, actually, in the briefs and in the opinions of the court about really what exactly went on, what his policy was, and what uh, exactly what services he refused to provide. But I think this is the understanding on which the court decided the case, uh, that he said that he would sell them other items that he had in his shop, 
So if they wanted to buy, you know, cupcakes out of the um, uh, out of the display case, he would happily sell that to them. Uh, but that he would not make a custom cake for a same-sex wedding. Uh, it appears that no matter what that cake looked like, so while the couple wound up, I believe, getting a rainbow cake for their wedding, uh, he hadn't gotten to the stage of discussing with them what cake they wanted him to make. He also uh, took the position that uh, he wouldn't sell a cake for a same-sex wedding to the mother of one of the grooms, uh, who was or not herself uh, gay, but uh, who uh, was uh, with them at one of the visits uh, to the to the bakeries. So uh, the complaint was brought against Masterpiece Cake Shop and Mr. Phillips before the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, uh, which is an administrative agency that is going to wind up being surprisingly important in the way the court decided this case. Uh, and the commission concluded that he had violated the public accommodation statute uh, and that he was required to, among other things, uh, stop doing that and to train his staff not to commit further violations in the future. And the Colorado Court of Appeals, the intermediate court in Colorado, decided to uh, to, to affirm that. Uh, a petition for cert was filed, and it was relisted, you know, how many times, John? Like it was just like 14 times. It set a record, yeah. Uh, so the court took a very long time, including like bridging the confirmation of Justice Gorsuch, uh, to decide whether to hear the, uh, hear the case. But here it they did. Uh, and the case was briefed on two theories, uh, a, free, a free exercise theory and a free speech theory. Uh, the the uh, baker argued that the civil rights statute was forcing him to provide uh, goods and services for a wedding with which he had a sincere, uh, to which he had a sincere and deeply felt religious objection, that that was a burden on his free exercise of religion. Uh, and it also was compelling him to create expression in the form of a custom cake, uh, and that that violated his right to free speech as well. Uh, the United States wound up filing a brief focusing exclusively on the free speech theory, a lot of the argument was spent on the free speech theory, uh, focusing on the uh, burning question of whether cake is speech uh, and the corollary questions of whether a makeup artist is an artist, whether a hairstylist is engaged in expression, uh, or a fancy chef uh, is engaged in uh, conduct protected by the First Amendment. Uh, but that wasn't how the court decided the case. The court, uh, after a long, long, long time, uh, in early June, handed down a decision by Justice Kennedy that attracted seven votes uh, for the judgment that held that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, the agency, uh, had engaged in biased decision-making because of some comments made by commissioners of, of that agency about Mr. Phillips' religion, the most uh, uh, problematic of which was that the uh, one commissioner had described Mr. Phillips' justification of his uh, decision not to provide a, a cake for the complainant's wedding as a despicable piece of rhetoric and likening it to religious justifications for slavery or the Holocaust. Uh, and the court, in an opinion by Justice Kennedy, uh, held that this was uh, biased and unconstitutionally discriminatory decision-making because it equated a good faith and sincerely held religious belief uh, with rhetoric, in other words, something not sincerely held, but you know, a mere sort of debating position, uh, and called it despicable. 
uh, and it compared the Civil Rights Commission's decision in Mr. Phillips' case to decisions in other cases in which a religious customer had gone into other bakeries in Colorado and had said, I'd like you to make a cake, a custom cake, uh, expressing a religious message against same-sex marriage. Uh, and each of the bakeries declined to make that cake, uh, and the Civil Rights Commission rejected complaints against those bakeries uh, on the ground that, as the Supreme Court later recounted, well, that message was offensive, and so, of course, the bakeries wouldn't want to associate themselves with that message. And the Supreme Court basically said, Civil Rights Commission, you can't have it both ways. You can't, uh, ex- you can't say that Mr. Phillips has to make the cake because, after all, no one would associate him with the wedding of his customers. Uh, but these other bakers have the right to refuse service because, after all, this message is offensive and they shouldn't have to associate themselves with their customer's message. So the case is reversed uh, and basically not based on a legal principle that there is a right to refuse service, uh, whether for makeup artists or cake bakers or uh, religious proprietors of public accommodations generally, but based on the way the Colorado Civil Rights Commission decided this case. And that is how they got to seven votes. Uh, And uh, uh, there were various dueling concurrences, including uh, Justice Kagan suggesting quite strongly that uh, she did not agree uh, that the uh, different treatment of the religious complainants and the uh, same-sex couple by the Civil Rights Commission was a problem. Uh, And Justice Gorsuch quite uh, forcefully expressing the view that it was, in fact, a problem. Uh, And then the dissenters, uh, Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor, uh, would have upheld the decision uh, across the board uh, on the ground that basically uh, this is a neutral rule of general applicability. Uh, It is not compelling speech, and it is is, uh, something that a state legislature can pass, notwithstanding any religious religious objection that any individual proprietor might raise. So, uh, Neil and John, I want to ask you whether you have any views, but I'm I'm curious about this. There was some debate after this opinion came out about whether this was uh, a a narrow decision or a broader decision and whether or not, you know, so Arlene's Flowers and Baronel Stutzman has now been remanded for further uh, proceedings about whether or not, you know, someone's going to go before uh, one of these civil rights commissions who are going to say, you know, gee, we respect your views and, you know, perfectly fine and, and treat somebody civilly, not compare them to Nazis and KKK members, and then still rule against them. So I, I'm curious sort of where you think this issue is going and whether you think this was a, a broader decision or a really narrow decision. Uh, I view this as a narrow decision. The, uh, <clears throat> I, I interpreted the, the repeated relisting before the court granted the case as uh, I, I suspected that they had try a hard time getting four votes for the grant because uh, I suspect that Justice Kennedy wasn't too eager to get into this case because it combines, you know, it brings into clash two things that he feels very strongly about, both speech, free speech, and also, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, right to same-sex marriage uh, that he, you know, wrote and uh, he recognized in his opinion. Um, and uh, he was only too happy, I think, to duck it when the time came. Uh, but uh, I think the preview, I, I view the concurring opinion or the separate opinions as basically uh, the Spanish Civil War as a rehearsal for what's coming next. 
And uh, Justice uh, Gorsuch's uh, opinion is like, this is, uh, you know, how the conservatives will view it. Uh, and Justice Kagan's opinion is how uh, the liberals will pitch it. Um, and uh, so we'll find out what, uh, uh, if it's Kavanaugh, whether, you know, what he thinks about that. Um, so. Yeah, I agree. I agree basically with that. So I think it's it's a narrow opinion. The court, I think, really didn't want to, it's not just marriage equality, but I think just the dignitary interest that Justice Kennedy has recognized for so long and how it clashes with freedom of religion. I mean, you know, this is such a hard case, um, regardless of where you sit in terms of who nominated you or whatever. This is a really, really difficult case. And so I think that's why the opinion itself is pretty narrow. And yes, there'll be some skirmishing about what it means. But at the end of the day, I think it means that, you know, it lives for another day to really be decided. And, you know, I thought about this um, when the decision came down. There were a lot of people saying, oh, this portends certain things for the travel ban case and so on. And I, I never really gave that much credence. There was some skirmishing in the opinions in the travel ban case with Justice Sotomayor in the last pages of her dissent, quoting page after page of Masterpiece to say, you know, you said we're going to strictly scrutinize religious discrimination. In that case, why aren't you doing it here? Um, but at the end of the day, it did feel like a pretty narrow opinion. Uh, John, uh, the Supreme Court took up a case, uh, one of its longstanding precedents, uh, an important First Amendment case. It could have long-term political ramifications in the Janus case. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And um, uh, it's funny. This case has been kicking around long enough uh, that Neil has actually heard me preview this case uh, in one of its, uh, pre uh, its previous incarnations. So uh, in May 23, 1977, uh, the Supreme Court uh, handed down Abood versus De 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 Detroit Board of Education, um, which held that uh, public labor union can uh, force non-members to pay expenses incurred in collective bargaining, uh, but labor unions can't uh, uh, can't force non-members uh, to fund ideological or political efforts, um, and that uh, stood for you know decade after decade. Uh, in, 19, in the 2011 term. In a case called Knox versus SEIU, the court took up a case uh, involving compelled, uh, 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 compelled contributions of non-members. And during the argument, Justice Kennedy asked a question about, uh, uh, he, he asked, isn't how much the government spends money uh, ultimately a political judgment? And he noted that significant political judgments that are being made by the union in the course of collective bargaining with chargeable expenses. That is that, you know, when you're uh, a public employees, how much the government spends is really kind of a political thing. And the uh, lawyer for the unions responded, absolutely, which he may regret now. Um, uh, but in any event, uh, both in Knox uh, and then a couple terms later in Harris versus Quinn, uh, the court, uh, or at least a five-justice majority, threw a lot of cold water on Abood. Uh, and, you know, it, I always wondered why didn't they just overrule it in those cases, but it kept hanging on, hanging on. Uh, the court then granted in Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association. It was argued a month before Justice Scalia died, and it looked to me like the handwriting was on the wall, uh, that the majority of the court, a conservative majority, would uh, overrule Abood. Uh, but, of course, uh, Justice Scalia died, and about 90 days after his death, the court affirmed by an equally divided vote. So we pretty much knew uh, where all the votes shook out there, pretty much where you would expect. Um, you know, the, 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 the uh, 
Petitioner's Council for Friedrich uh, filed a rehearing petition, which the court rescheduled like eight times, I think looking to see if they might have a new justice on the court who would break the tie. Uh, but at the end of that term, they just dismissed it, and that was the end of that. Um, fast forward to Janus versus uh, AFSME, uh, another one of the very big pl uh, uh, public unions. Uh, and on the f after the long conference at the end of September, the court took this case up and they argued it so we could all see what Justice Gorsuch's views were since he was going to be the tie-breaking justice. And he asked no questions at argument. So, uh, you know, we had to wonder exactly where his views were. It came down to the very last day of the term. And in fact, this is kind of an overtime for Supreme Court nerds because usually they wrap things up by the last Monday of June, and this went to Wednesday, which the court, you know, hasn't done since, I think, 2012. So uh, this was really hard fought to the really bitter end. And uh, it was decided 5-4 pretty much exactly the way you would expect uh, based on Knox and Harris. Um, and Justice Alito wrote both of those other opinions, and he wrote this one as well. Um, the case came from Illinois, and it was a very good case for picking up on Justice Kennedy's point at Knox, uh, because Illinois is broke, and uh, it's my home state. I, it, it kills me how much they've gone downhill since I left. I, I don't think they're connected. <laughs> but uh, uh, in any event, you know, how much the government spends or how much Illinois spends on benefits for its public employees has, you know, it affects the state's solvency. Um, and the opinion had two parts, and I think they're both important. Uh, the first part is, of course, just a straight First Amendment argument, uh, where they said uh, the majority, uh, the conservatives, said this is compelled speech, it's compelled subsidizing of speech, um, and they said that the original rationales didn't hold up, you know, the old 41-year-old rationales, which are like, you know, labor peace, uh, in having only one union, and also um, to avoid free riding, you know, they they the court got rid of those in kind of a hurry, and then it turned towards kind of the later rationales. The rationales were offered by the union and by the dissenters, which is kind of a Pickering type of argument that that the state, uh, as an employer, has more leeway in restricting speech than it does uh, when it's uh, when you know those are just private citizens, and uh, the majority wasn't uh, very persuaded by those either. It then turned to stare decisis, and of course stare decisis is very important because everybody's watching to see uh, what the court will do with a new member. And uh, in this, you know, I don't know how much application some of it will have because the first thing out of their mouths was that stare decisis is especially kind of at low ebb when it comes to First Amendment cases. Um, uh, and so, you know, that's a fairly, they're beginning with the narrowest grounds. And they also said, that, you know, it was poorly reasoned um, uh, and that uh, it was problematic to implement and that it's hard to draw a line between chargeable expenses and non-chargeable expenses. That is, you know, what is uh, un impermissibly ideological or political and what is uh, permissibly just, you know, collective bargaining and getting better benefits for the non-members. Um, uh, the majority also said that it had been undermined by subsequent developments in First Amendment law, because after all, there has been a lot of First Amendment law. Uh, you know, uh, the court has become much more pro-free speech during the intervening four decades. Um, and then finally, they said there were low reliance interests because labor union contracts turn over every few years. And also, by the way, you know, everyone's known which way we we're going on this for a long time. You know, see Knox and Harris. Um, the dissent really stripped the bark off the tree. I think it's the most uh, vituperative dissent that I've seen Justice Kagan write. 
Um, and uh, certainly, the, I think the most impassioned. You know, this was this was you know not uh, this is not some sort of wry thing where she's citing Dr. Zeus uh, like in the Yates uh, the fish case uh, dissent. Uh, this was uh, much more uh, impassioned. Um, and uh, I, I, I will say mostly it's uh, it's uh, noteworthy for its discussion of. Uh, of stare decisis, because it ends with something that seems, you know, it accuses the majority of a crusade to overrule Abood, and uh, it ends with something that really does sound kind of like it's out of an old John Birch Society uh, statement about the Warren Court. It says, the majority's road run longs, and at every stop are black-robed rulers overriding citizens' choices, um, which is, you know, exactly the sort of things that critics have said, uh, critics usually on the right have said about the old liberal courts. Uh, but it's you know definitely worth a read, and uh, you can see how this case went down to the very last day because it was really pretty uh, hard fought out, and uh, both sides uh, take on the other's arguments. Uh, it does have enormous implications, although they might not be as enormous as you think, because only 22 states, uh, so less than a majority, had laws permitting unions to uh, you know charge these type of fees. Uh, but it's very important in those. I mean, they're overwhelmingly kind of blue states, and um, uh, it uh, if people can get the union services for free, a lot fewer people are going to be members of the union, are going to be uh, not, and so they're not going to be paying the union dues. It's going to, uh, you know, take a lot of money potentially out of uh, Democratic candidates and uh, make unions less powerful. Public sector unions have been kind of the bright spot on unionism in recent decades, and this is... Uh, you know, uh, it, it's certainly hard for them. I suspect that uh, efforts will be made among those states to try to do some sort of repair and get around it. Uh, but I'm not sophisticated enough in labor law to know where that, uh, you know, wh how successful that might be. Anything to add? You know, Willie? Just interesting. Uh, I know Neil's going to talk about the sales tax case. You know, so in this case, you have Justice Ginsburg joining a dissent with the PN to stare decisis and then. Uh, overruling another president of the court in, an, uh, in another case in the same term. So, uh, so let's get to that one. So the Supreme Court also reconsidered a precedent in the internet sales tax case. Neil, you want to talk about that? Sure. The case is called South Dakota versus Wayfair, and I think it's interesting in its own right, has enormous implications for our economy, but it does, as Willie uh, suggests, have a lot to say about stare decisis, and particularly as we think about the confirmation hearing of Judge Kavanaugh, precedent is going to loom large in that confirmation hearing, and here you see two kind of rival perspectives on how to think about precedent. So you've got this 1992 Supreme Court case called Quill. And in Quill, it basically stood by the 1967 decision of the Supreme Court in a case called National Bellas. And there, the court said in 1967 that states can require a retailer to collect sales tax only if that retailer has a, quote, physical presence in the state. So Amazon for years had no physical presence. Now they got these bookstores and stuff in Bethesda, but before that they didn't have any. So you'd buy from Amazon and you didn't have to pay the sales tax that you would have to pay for the very same book if you bought it from politics and prose or wherever. So there was a disparity. Um, now, when Quill was decided in 92, and, and certainly when National Bellis was decided, you know, the interstate economy was very different. We had these things called mail-order catalogs, and that's how you bought stuff. You couldn't go on the internet and type it in. You had to wait for it, come into your mailbox, and the like. Now, South Dakota basically manufactured this Supreme Court case. They said, 
you know, we think that doesn't make any sense in the age of internet in the internet. So they had their legislature pass a law, which obviously was directly contrary to binding Supreme Court precedent at the time. And the law said, look, if you engage in more than $100,000 in transactions and sales to folks in South Dakota, you've got to pay that you've got to pay the, the company's got to collect the sales tax. Um, in 1967, the Supreme Court said, you know, you can force individual residents to pay a use tax or something like that. So, you know, if you bought from Amazon the book, you, you know, the state could say you, the buyer, are under an obligation to pay a tax. But in some states, enacted such laws, but nobody followed them. Um, and so, South Dakota enacts this law. It's obviously challenged right away by retailers on the ground that it violates Quill and National Bellis, um, and it goes to the Supreme Court on that basis. Now, South Dakota basically says that Bella Haas, this 1967 decision, is basically legal formalism. It's when there was kind of rigid formal rules um, for thinking about the Dormant Commerce Clause, but the Supreme Court had really moved away from that into something more flexible in a case called Complete Auto. And Complete Auto basically was kind of the touchstone for Dormant Commerce Clause jurisprudence. It asks basically, what effect is the tax going to have? Is it going to burden interstate commerce or discriminate against out-of-state businesses as opposed to the kind of rigid, is there a physical presence requirement or not? And in Quill... In 1992, the Supreme Court acknowledged that, you know, the the the, uh, the, the Bellis decision is really an outlier um, in light of complete auto, but it is our precedent, and the Supreme Court said we're not going to overrule our precedent, stare decisis counsels against it. So South Dakota says, well, it's now been several decades since Quill, and in those decades, a lot of things have happened. We've had this boom in interstate in internet commerce. Uh, we have in the ability for retailers to collect taxes using software um, that's really easy as opposed to in the old days. Um, and, you know, they say, look, Supreme Court, you don't have to say Quill was wrongly decided. You can just say that the factual premises have changed. And they have this whole long discussion about stare decisis in their briefs, brief saying, look, all the kind of special justifications for when the court wants to overrule precedent exist here, that this is a constitutional case, it's not a statutory case, the facts have changed because of the rise of the internet and the rise of the software, there weren't strong reliance interests, Quill has been roundly criticized by the Supreme Court and commentators, and it's proven unworkable. And the respondent's brief, Wayfair basically just tries to justify, you know, they make the best case they can on the basis of stare decisis. It's a little hard to justify this disparity between, you know, the the old Amazons of the world with no physical presence and bricks-and-mortar retail. But they do the best job they can basically saying precedent, 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 stare decisis. That argument doesn't win, but it doesn't win by a five to four vote. And the lineup is, I think, the only time this lineup has ever happened. Um, it's a really unusual one. Here, Justice Kennedy writes the majority opinion. And Justice Kennedy is joined by Justices Ginsburg, Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch. And basically, the argument is that the Quill rule was wrong when it was initially formulated, and it's even more wrong today. That basically, the touchstone of the Dormant Commerce Clause Justice Kennedy says, is making sure there's an even playing field between in-staters and out-of-staters. And what this was effectively doing was skewing the balance in favor of folks without a physical presence. And he said, you know, 
It doesn't make sense that physical presence should really be the touchstone, that you can have some massive retailer shipping huge amounts of goods into a state and they get no tax. And then you got someone who has a physical presence with one employee or something like that, and that person, that company gets taxed. The dissent, written by the Chief Justice and joined by Justices Kagan, Bryan, as Breyer, and Sotomayor, say, look, okay, we'll agree Bella Haas may be wrong, but precedent and considerations of stare decisis counsel following that. If we disagree, if it's a bad decision, then you can have Congress overrule it. You can have Congress step into the breach in the Dormant Commerce Clause and bless these state laws like South Dakota. And he says that there isn't any real dramatic need anymore for the court to get in this because now the disparity that had existed, the kind of, uh, you know, the early Amazon disparity has gone away as more and more of the internet companies adopt physical presences anyway. And so you don't have the kind of mismatch that had been, lopsided mismatch that had been occurring earlier. So I think an important case in its own right, obviously for the internet economy, but also I think uh, important because it does give us some clues about precedent. And yes, there is the lingering Willie J question, which is how does the same justice who joins Wayfair um, explain, you know, that vote in light of, for example, what happened with respect to Abood? Does have anything you want to add? Just is a funny case for sorry to size purposes, though, because even though it was a constitutional rule, it was a constitutional rule that Congress could overrule, and so in some ways it's kind of more of a, a, a statutory case. Uh, where the statutory stare decisis rules, which are much stronger uh, or much more strongly favor precedent, uh, it seems like that you know might have applied. But and it's also a little bit unusual in stare decisis cases because I mean often you have one side saying I'm going to overrule this case, which I think is wrong, and the other side says uh, says that precedent is right but you shouldn't overrule it anyway because of stare decisis. And this case is different because even the dissenters acknowledge that the decision that they that the court is overruling was wrong, uh, but they would keep it anyway. You don't often see that in a, stare, in a stare decisis case. Often stare decisis is being used in the competing opinions as an additional argument, uh, but not the sole argument. So, Willie, there was another important uh, constitutional case that will have a real impact, I think, on how administrative agencies operate, and that was the, uh, I've heard it pronounced Lucia or Lucia versus SEC. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that case? Absolutely. This is about administrative law judges, and uh, the uh, uh, the court had another case uh, this term, which we're not talking about, which involved a different set of administrative judges, and the chief justice uh, interrupted during the oral argument to say, that's not who we mean when we say judge. Uh, so these administrative law judges work for the, in this case, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and they are the first line adjudicators in disciplinary and uh, 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 similar cases against, in this case, a broker dealer. Uh, and the commission has the right to review their decisions, uh, but they have the first line review, and often there is actually no review by the commission either. You know, uh, this, this is somewhat contested between the justices uh, about whether it's because nobody asks uh, or uh, because the ALJs actually have some final decision-making authority. Um, but they, uh, they hear an awful lot of the uh, disputes that come before the SEC in its adjudicatory capacity. Now, the SEC is an agency, uh, and there is no dispute that the agency could appoint these ALJs, but 
the agency has not chosen to do so. Instead, they decided to, to have their chief ALJ, who is uh, not confirmed by the Senate or appointed by the president, appoint the other ALJs. And so that implicates the appointments clause of the Constitution, which says that the president can appoint officers of the United States by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, but as to inferior officers, Congress may vest the appointment of inferior officers in the president alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. So uh, if these are inferior officers, they must be appointed by, at a minimum, the head of a department. And we're all assuming, because the court said so in a case in 2011, that the commission itself could serve as the head of a department. Uh, but if instead ALJs are just employees, you know, they're no different than you know, the janitor who uh, sweeps the floors at the SEC, uh, then they don't have to be appointed uh, in accordance with the constitutional procedure at all. They can simply be hired uh, pursuant to law. So uh, this case came up through the administrative process and went to the D.C. Circuit, which had a longstanding precedent saying that ALJs are not officers. Uh, and the D.C. Circuit wound up deciding to reconsider that precedent, and it heard the case en banc. At the same time, a similar challenge was being heard out in the Tenth Circuit. Uh, and in the Tenth Circuit, the challenger to the ALJ decision prevailed uh, two to one uh, before that circuit. Uh, meanwhile, the D.C. Circuit, which at the time had 10 active judges, heard the ALJ case en banc and split five to five uh, and thus upholding the ALJ's decision and the SEC's decision and its own precedent. Uh, but obviously there were five uh, votes on that court uh, to do something different. Uh, and for those who are interested in the nose counting, that means that at least one uh, judge who was appointed by a Democratic president uh, must have joined uh, in, the, uh, in the group to change approaches and hold that the ALJs were, in fact, officers. The case went to the Supreme Court, uh, and I, I should note, by the way, that the Trump administration defended uh, the uh, constitutionality of the appointment of the ALJs before the D.C. Circuit, uh, ha having a lawyer for the Department of Justice go and defend the decision of the SEC. But when the case went to the Supreme Court, uh, they changed. They changed positions. And uh, they filed a brief through the Solicitor General uh, saying that the court ought to take the case, that it ought to take the case from the D.C. Circuit, because if it took the case from the Tenth Circuit, Justice Gorsuch would be recused, uh, and that when they took it, they ought to uh, appoint an amicus curiae to defend the decision of the D.C. Circuit, because the government would be arguing that the appointment of ALJs is, is in fact, uh, unconstitutional unless uh, vested in the heads of departments. And so... Uh, they also asked the court to take on another question that actually was not in the petition, uh, which is, how do you fire an ALJ? Does, if they're officers of the United States, do they fall within the president's power to remove? Uh, or uh, are they the constitutionally problematic in the same way that the court had found in 2011 uh, in the uh, case called Free Enterprise Fund about an 
a body that exists sort of beneath the SEC, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. And the SEC appoints the PCAOB members, each of whom was insulated by for-cause removal. And the Supreme Court had said double for-cause removal is impermissible. So what about ALJs, who also are uh, protected from removal if they are appointed by the SEC, uh, who, and if the SEC commissioners are protected from re- removal, does that create the same kind of problem? So the court heard the case, appointed an amicus curiae, and wound up deciding the case uh, in favor of the challenger, but not reaching this removal question. So the court's holding, strictly speaking, is that ALJs, the way they are set up uh, by the SEC, are officers of the United States, and they must be appointed at a minimum by the heads of departments. And so everything that the SEC ALJs had been doing is invalid. The SEC has uh, now appointed all of the SE, uh, all of the ALJs and uh, retroactively blessed as many things as they could do and sent as many uh, sent as many other things as they uh, still had open back to the ALJs for reconsideration by a proper appointment. But as we're going to talk about, that may not be a good enough strategy. This is an opinion by Justice Kagan for a uh, again a lopsided majority of the court. Uh, and Justice Kagan, former administrative law professor, uh, and uh, here you see her opinion joined by the five more conservative justices, uh, which is uh, an unusual lineup. Uh, you don't see Justice Kagan splintering from the other justices on the left side of the court very often. Uh, Justice Breyer has sort of a middle ground position and the dissents written by Justice Sotomayor joined by Justice Ginsburg. Justice Kagan, uh, you know, just continuing on our theme of precedent, uh, manages to write this in as precedenty a way as it is possible to write. Basically, the Supreme Court had a decision about a uh, an official of the tax court called a special trial judge uh, in 1991. And the special trial judge has his or her decisions reviewed by real tax court judges. Uh, and the opinion of the court in this case basically compares the ALJ to the special tax court judge, special trial judge, and says, in every relevant respect, they are ju- they exercise authority as significant as or more significant than the special trial judge. Therefore, under that earlier case, which is called Freytag or Freytag, uh, this ap- this appointment is invalid as well, or th- these people are officers as well. Uh, and Justice Breyer uh, doesn't think the comparison is quite so easy. He thinks it's really a matter of what did Congress intend, and he has sort of a on the, long on the one hand, on the other hand, concurrence, but but still comes out in the same place. Uh, and the dissenters basically say. Ultimately, everything these people can do is reviewed by the SEC. Therefore, they don't have any final authority, even if their authority is significant. You know, they can punish you for contempt if you don't show up. Uh, but ultimately, what they do is reviewable by the SEC, and that's good enough as a bright line rule to make them not officers of the United States. Uh, so, uh, an interesting decision for the administrative state, uh, and in particular, an aspect of the majority opinion that none of the parties actually asked for, which is. What happens if your case is sent back to an ALJ uh, who has already decided it, but whose appointment was invalid? The appointment has now been cured, and the case is sent back. The Supreme Court says in a neat little couple of paragraphs at the end of the opinion that you are entitled to a do-over before a new judge, which is something the court has never held before. And it says it that the reason that we're doing this, with which Justice Breyer disagrees, by the way, the reason that we're doing this is to incentivize people to bring appointments clause challenges. Uh, if you 
uh, think that all you're going to get out of your lengthy litigation all the way up to the Supreme Court is just a do-over before the exact same person, uh, and the reason for the do-over has nothing to do with the merits, you're probably going to wind up losing again before that same person. So you are, in fact, going to get a fresh appointment of an ALJ. Now, not so fast, the court says, if you think that you can disqualify an entire administrative agency on this principle, there is still a rule of necessity that there has to be somebody available to hear the case. Uh, and so if, you're, if your theory would disqualify the entire agency, then that's not going to work. But if all it means is giving you a fresh ALJ, absolutely you're entitled to that. It's this last aspect that I think is most significant about this opinion because there are tons. When I worked at OLC, I became aware of the fact that there are tons of people who do things in the federal government who aren't appointed properly. And uh, what happens when those people come to light, like wasn't it uh, PTAB or whatever, this Patent and Trade Appeals Board, uh, you know, somebody, a former OLC uh, deputy wrote an article about, hey, these patent judges are uh, unlawfully appointed years ago. And so, you know, they, they, the Congress fixed it. And uh, all that happened really was the same people ratified it. And I think that that's what has been going on so far uh, throughout the government. Whenever one of these problems is spotted, they pretty much just try to repair it and ratify the decisions. The same people who made the invalid decision then ratified their decisions. And uh, this potentially makes this much more problematic because, you know, some agencies, we could talk about tons and tons of decisions. Right. And, uh, you know, you could see the same rationale applying when there is a challenge to a recess appointment, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a challenge to uh, a an agency that lacks a proper quorum under its statute. Uh, agencies have gotten away for a long time with the idea that if we're caught, we'll just say what I said before, but this time with the proper, you know, certifications at the bottom. Uh, and that may not work as much anymore. Anything to add now? All right. Uh, John, I want to talk a little bit about an important First Amendment case involving uh, crisis pregnancy centers. Can you talk a little bit about NIFLA versus Becerra? Sure. If you, uh, you may have noticed a pattern here. I'm doing the weaponized First Amendment docket. <laughs> um, so NIFLA versus Becerra, California adopted a law for uh, so-called crisis pregnancy centers uh, which uh, are essentially pro-life uh, centers that uh, try to counsel uh, pregnant people who are considering abortion out of doing so. Uh, and they impose two requirements uh, on them, one for licensed centers and one for unlicensed centers. Uh, the licensed facility requirement, <clears throat> oh, and also I think something that's very important for this uh, and was important for the majority is that uh, the requirements were gerrymandered in such a way that essentially they only applied to these uh, pro-life crisis centers, pro- crisis pregnancy centers. You know, it may be that there are some people that applied to, um, uh, I haven't fly-specked the opinion enough to know whether they found anybody that it did apply to that what didn't fall in that category, but it seemed to be driven, uh, pointed especially enough at them that it really mattered to the uh, majority. But for the, the licensed facilities, they were required to post a notice in the waiting room and 48-point font saying, uh, you know, essentially that uh, you can get a free or low-cost uh, various services, including abortion. I mean, uh, it, it said, you know, family planning services, contraception, uh, prenatal services, and abortion. I'm pretty sure that the state of California also pays for free childbirth or at least subsidized childbirth, but that was not in the notice. 
Um, for unlicensed facilities, uh, it just required them to say that it's not a facility that is licensed by the state of California. And uh, it, I think that they also had to, the unlicensed facilities also had to provide that notice to the person. Just that's not enough. Just to post it in the waiting room, you also had to give a notice to the person uh, as you're as you're dealing with them. And in addition to that, uh, they also had to provide the notice uh, in any advertisement you did, and at least the same size font. Uh, as the message that the advertisement was getting across. And in addition to the notice uh, in English, you also had to provide it in uh, whatever languages were prevalent in that county, uh, which in California could be as many as 13 different languages. So it, uh, it, it wound up it being potentially a very crowded announcement. Uh, so a crisis pregnancy center, an organization of crisis pregnancy centers, and an unlicensed facility and a licensed facility all filed suit. Uh, they sought a preliminary injunction in the district court, lost, went to the Ninth Circuit, lost uh, on the grounds that this was uh, professional speech, uh, subject to lower standard of review, and it didn't pass intermediate scrutiny. They found the licensed, uh, I'm sorry, the unlicensed warning uh, would pass, you know, uh, any standard of scrutiny. Um, and so they went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court reversed in a 5-4 decision uh, written by Justice Thomas and joined by all of the court's conservatives. I think it's interesting that neither of these First Amendment cases I'm talking about were written by Justice uh, Kennedy, even though I, I think you can see his handiwork on them and all the precedents that led up to them. Um, on the license notice, the court began by throwing cold water on the idea that there's such a thing as uh, a lower center of view for professional speech. They didn't decide it because they said they didn't have to uh, because it didn't pass muster even under intermediate scrutiny. But it said, you know, look, uh, we've never really said that there's a, such a thing as professional speech that's subject to a lower standard of review. There's a couple of different categories, but this doesn't fall into either of them. Um, and, oh, by the way, you know, uh, professional speech or the state monkeying with professional speech can cause all sorts of problems, CEG, the Cultural Revolution, and Nazi Germany. So, I mean, that's, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of a barn burner uh, to cite those two things. Um, and also, by the way, it's very hard to decide what exactly is covered by professional speech. Does this include barbers, for example? Um, and then it went through the two examples of professional speech being subject to uh, lower regular or lower standards of review, uh, which were first... Uh, um, some laws require professionals to disclose non-controversial facts, like, for example, in lawyer advertising, if you do it on, on a contingent fee basis, you have to say you may have to pay certain, you know, fees or, or costs that are encountered along the way. And they said, you know, that isn't, you know, covered here because, um, you know, this is not exactly – that's reserved for non-controversial statements and anything having to do with abortion is not a non-controversial statement. And then second, uh, and I think this is more kind of substantive or this is a, a – you know, this got more people's hackles up. Uh, the court has upheld regulation of professional conduct that incidentally burdens speech, most famously in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, which upheld a law requiring physicians to obtain informed consent before they could perform an abortion and required physicians to inform patients of the availability of printed materials uh, and the state, uh, I'm sorry, and they, they have to require, I thought this was very telling, they said they had to provide information, quote, about the child and various forms of assistance, unquote. And I thought that was itself telling they referred to a, uh, you know, a, a child inside a woman as a child, which was a very, I think, Justice Thomas thing to do. You know, they didn't say fetus or uh, Justice, Justice Kennedy probably would have written around the whole thing. Um, uh, so it was a non-issue. 
And the majority distinguished that by saying that the license notice didn't, you know, it didn't really deal with informed consent. It's just telling the whole world, you know, regardless of what services we're performing for you, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, here's all this information, regardless of how relevant it is, you know, to uh, what you're coming to see us about. Um, uh, let me see here. And they said that most of what went on here had to do with tailoring. They said that, you know, if their goal is to, you know, educate low income women in California, this is a really weird way of doing it because there are all sorts of clinics that are going to see many more of these people and they don't have to provide this information. Um, and, uh, you know, that suggests that that's not, you know, providing information is not really uh, what California wants to do. What it really wants to do is separate between speakers and disadvantage certain speakers. Um, the unlicensed notice, I think uh, even the challengers uh, thought that that was going to be a tougher lift. Uh, but the Supreme Court invalidated that by the same 5-4 vote. Um, and they noted that, you know, it, it, was, it was less analysis, it required less analysis. They said, look, these are services that don't require a medical license. Uh, so it's kind of funny that you got to say, you know, we don't have a license. Um, and, but most of the work was done on, the, um, on tailoring because, again, there are all sorts of other people who provide different types of clinic services that are kind of related that don't have to say they're unlicensed. You know, people who give out contraceptives don't have to say they're unlicensed. And the court viewed that, the court majority viewed that as suspicious. And then also um, they noted how burdensome this was. Again, that if you just post a two-word ad, choose life, you have to have a 29-word disclaimer that, you know, is in potentially up to 13 different languages and just crowds out your message in the same size font. Um, Justice Kennedy filed a concurrence, and uh, I commend this to you because even though his concurrence in uh, the um, uh, the travel ban case came out later because of the way that the Supreme Court does hand downs. Uh, I view this as kind of Justice Kennedy's valedictory because it was on his favorite subject, speech. Uh, and it uh, was, you know, uh, it sounded on various notes that he cares a great deal about, which is basically he noted that California uh, had said, had, you know, the legislature had done sort of a self-congratulatory thing saying how this represented how forward thinking they were. And he said, you know, there's nothing forward thinking about making people say things that they don't agree with. And, uh, you know, he talked about authoritarian regimes, you know, have always been trying to stifle speech they disagree with. Um, but in any event, um, uh, you know, because this is such a central theme for Justice Kennedy's, you know, his time on the bench, I thought that that was uh, very uh, uh, significant. Um, the only thing I will say about the, uh, you know, the implications, uh, the, the dissenters, Justice Breyer filed a much more, uh, you know, moderate dissent. I mean, it, that is, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, really a fire-breathing thing. Um, but, I, I, you know, it's another example, I think, of a very broad uh, speech protections in the Roberts Court. And one thing I'll be very interested to see what happens with this is the court has sort of ducked uh, conversion therapy uh, cases for a while, and that there's several states, New Jersey, New York, or, or New Jersey and California, that have uh, have laws basically prohibiting people from trying to convert uh, gays. And uh, those have been upheld, I think, probably on restrictions of or, or saying that it's okay to restrict professional speech. Uh, those cases have come up to the Supreme Court. They've been relisted a few times, suggesting that people are looking at them closely, but they've all been denied. And it'll be interesting to see whether anybody mounts kind of a renewed attack on those, although I suspect that the court will still be more than happy to duck that if they possibly can. You guys want to have anything you want to add to that? All right. Uh, 
So I've got a couple of more things I want to talk about before we open this up for questions. So one of them, Willie, you referred to this as an issue of nomentis, which was, uh, you know, the court accepted uh, to hear a couple of political gerrymandering cases, one out of Wisconsin, one out of Maryland, and they sort of ducked uh, the issue. So I'm, I'm curious what you, what any of you gentlemen think was going on there and sort of what happens with the future of these political gerrymandering cases. Justice Kennedy had said in a concurrence in 2004, essentially, I have not yet been presented with a standard that I would find manageable for gerrymandering cases, but I am not ready to say never. I'm not ready to declare them non-justiciable. And, again, you know, John referred to the concurrence as Justice Kennedy's swan song. You know, I, I thought that uh, when Justice Kennedy was still on the court this term and that the court had agreed to take up not just one but the second uh, – gerrymandering case uh, that he had found something that he was willing to write in an opinion in a gerrymandering case. Uh, and it turns out that not only was he not ready, but that he's not going to be around to hear the next one. I, the things I thought were noteworthy about this were um, that I felt like between, you know, the, the first gerrymandering argument was argued, what, during the first sitting, October? Yeah. Uh, and the second one was argued in, like, January or something. And the January one, it seemed like they were just as up in the air in January as they were then. And by that point, you should have seen at least some, some opinions circulated. So I thought, you know, this is going to be a real tough one. And uh, they cared enough about ducking it that they even ducked the second one, even though that's a mandatory jurisdiction case. Uh, you know, it was an appeal, and they can't, you know, they just dismiss it as improvidently granted or whatever. Um, uh, and the other thing I thought was interesting was I thought for a long time that Justice Kennedy, well, not a long time, but I thought for the last two terms, I was like that little boy who, call, who cried retirement. I thought for sure Justice Kennedy was going to go. And I did until uh, the concurrence in, of uh, Justice Kagan in Gill, where, you know, it seemed like a big love letter to Justice Kennedy's thinking on, you know, here is a, a type of claim that you might find justiciable. And, you know, it cited Justice Kennedy enough that I thought, you know, she wouldn't be investing all that time if she thought that he was going to be leaving the court. Um, and uh, in any event, uh, so for a, for a window there, I thought, oh, he's not going to retire now, or at least she has better information about whether he's going to retire, and she doesn't, you know, and she's doing all that. So anyway, shows you what I know. All right. Well, in a moment, I'm going to open it up to, to questions. My, uh, my admonition is uh, keep your hand raised until you get a microphone, uh, then identify yourself. No speeches, keep it short, and end it with a question mark. Uh, but uh, before we do that, I, I, I have to ask uh, you gentlemen about your two things. One is your any impressions you might have about uh, Justice Gorsuch after his first uh, full uh, term on the court and also about the new nominee and the confirmation fight ahead. So whoever would like to leap in first. Well, uh so the, the thing that struck me is that uh, Justice Gorsuch had more 5-4 opinions than any justice since, uh, during his first term, uh, since any justice since Justice Kennedy. And I thought that was very significant that, you know, I mean, talk about jumping in with both feet. And I don't know, you know, like uh, in years to come, we may eventually figure out why he had so many 5-4s, whether this means that the chief really had confidence in him in assigning those or whether they were all 9-0 after conference and uh, <laughs> just lost a lot of votes along the way. Um, but, you know, the rate the Supreme Court releases papers, uh, my grandchildren may not know. So, uh, and one other thing I thought was interesting was the last I checked, uh, and I checked, uh, 
I haven't actually checked since the last day of hand down since they did it so late, but I did it before my first Supreme Court roundup of the term, uh, which was actually on Wednesday of hand downs of the last hand downs. And it looked like Justice Gorsuch agreed most with Justice Kennedy. And I thought that was telling because uh, Justice Gorsuch had the most agreement with Justice Kennedy, but during one of Justice Kennedy's most conservative terms. This was a term where all his five fours uh, that broke on ideological grounds went, he went with the conservatives. But, you know, I pass it along for whatever it's worth. Um, uh, and probably not much. Well, with respect to Judge Kavanaugh, um, you know, I almost feel bad for him that he's being nominated for the seat that is kind of the swing seat. And so for folks who care about abortion or affirmative action or marriage equality, you know, there's going to be a fight here that maybe were this a different seat, you wouldn't have necessarily seen it in quite the same way. And also the person who's nominating him is the president who is, you know, whose White House is under subject of a lot of different investigations. And so, you know, I think that that will obscure some of the things about the, the nominee. I mean, I think um, the, it's very hard for anyone who's worked with him, appeared before him, to frankly say a bad word about him. I mean, this is a incredibly brilliant, careful person, but someone who will move the court in a conservative direction. And so, you know, that I think will be the debate, um, you know, in, in the weeks to come. But, you know, uh, I think in my practice, we basically have a rule if there's a Kavanaugh clerk who applies, we hire that person. And um, and that is, um, he's legendary for his preparation. I mean, this is a guy who reads every single, you know, we've given you the highlights of the Supreme Court opinions. There's some boring stuff. And trust me, we all argue those cases. And Judge Kavanaugh reads every one of those opinions, sits down with his clerks uh, on Fridays, and goes through them, each one, every single opinion. So, you know, he is an unusual judge. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I think it'll be a, a very interesting set of uh, hearings. I'm very interested in whether he will uh, bring to the court a practice that he currently has in the D.C. Circuit of having a laptop on the bench. Hmm. I've always had a soft spot for, uh, for Judge Kavanaugh because uh, somebody told me once that we had the distinction of ha being the two Kennedy clerks who had the lowest grades. <laughs> um, although he's done more with it than I have. <laughs> Your law school didn't have grades. What are you uh, talking about? Uh, but... Um, uh, you know, I'm tremendously impressed with the guy. I mean, he writes very thoughtful opinions, which frequently are, um, uh, you know, his dissenting opinions are frequently become Supreme Court majority opinions along the way. Um, he writes a, a lot of very thoughtful opinions on things. He does book reviews that are thoughtful. I was just reading uh, today a book review he did of David Barron's book on, you know, the president's, uh, you know, foreign affairs power, war-making powers. I mean, like, I would like to know, I would like to follow him around for a day just to see if he has the same 24 hours that I do because he's so incredibly productive. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I will say, though, uh, you know, I've had only a couple of arguments in front of him, both where he was delightful, a great guy. But I told my client, uh, we had a very tough case for the first one, and I said, if we don't get his vote, we didn't deserve to win. Uh, because I think, you know, enough of his judgment that I think, you know, I will do the best job I can, but if I don't get his vote, I probably should have lost. Uh, and I can't say that I would say that about every single case, but, uh, you know, the cases that I've seen, I've thought that about. Yeah, he's, he's a very careful and meticulous judge, uh, extremely well-prepared. Uh, 
he comes from the D.C. circuit. He's obviously deeply immersed in separation of powers and in the law governing the administrative state. And one of the ways in which he is going to replace Justice Kennedy uh, and potentially change the court, I'm not saying move it in one direction, but potentially change the court, is in what cases they are going to choose to hear going forward. Uh, and there may be more of a uh, more of a bent toward hearing some of the cases and some of the issues that the court has thus far declined to take up, you know, including the law-nerdily exciting uh, but significant question of how much deference is due to agencies when they're interpreting their own regulations, when they're interpreting statutes, and so forth. Jordan Lawrence with Alliance Spending Freedom. There's so many things I could ask, but uh, so I want to go into a more esoteric direction with the uh, Sauce v. Bauer. Um, this is the case about the uh, police who had a search of somebody's house and the woman couldn't pray. And uh, the I think it was the Tenth Circuit uh, said there was qualified immunity because it had been clearly established that cops can't stop people from praying. And it was relisted a zillion times. And then they, uh, they summarily reversed and said, look at the Fourth Amendment issue as well as the First Amendment issue because we think it's wrapped up in this. And so my question is, is that the court, do you, is that just, uh, it seems like they could have just denied cert. So does that indicate that the court, there's some at least discomfort with the whole qualified immunity and they couldn't quite decide what to do, so they punted it back, and they're kind of sending, like, we're semi-uncomfortable with the, you know, with the frequent invoking of qualified immunity to let the police off the hook, and, uh, or what what does that say to you? Well, the question whether qualified immunity should continue to exist is something that Justice Thomas has started to uh, put on the court's radar. Uh, but I think that they're clearly not going to do that in a summary opinion. Uh, but the court has been, you know, for years dealing with uh, a fair number of cases that don't deserve a space on the merits docket by reversing them summarily. And they have tended to be uh, cases in which qualified immunity was denied below or habeas relief was granted below or death penalty cases from Texas. Uh, and uh, this case, I think, is, is an example of the court finding a case in which qualified immunity was granted and it was willing to reverse that summarily. And I think, I don't know, I see that, uh, I see it as not being a coincidence that that came right after Justice Sotomayor had started to, frankly, make a stink about which cases the court was choosing to summarily reverse and saying, essentially, why is it always the officer who wins on summary reversal? So here is a case in which a broader majority of the court could, uh, can get behind a summary reversal on behalf of a 1983 petitioner. The, uh, just as an uh, interesting bit of trivia, that was uh, written by James Ho. The petition was filed by James Ho, uh, who between uh, the filing and uh, you know when it was re resolved, uh, of course, he was confirmed and actually has had several sittings as a judge on the Fifth Circuit. Other questions? Over here. Hi, Adam. Oh, oh. <laughs> My name is 
Isu Park. Uh, I'm a law student. I'm working here as a summer intern here in DC. Um, I just had a question in regards to the gerrymandering cases, especially the Gill versus Woodford. Um, I just wanted your take on the possibility of the court recognizing First Amendment uh, rights of association uh, claims uh, and using that as a basis for overturning uh, gerrymandering cases. And also, if they ever do, would that sort of affect the search for the so-called manageable, uh, the search for manageable standard in future gerrymandering cases? So the, the First Amendment theory uh, was not in the Gill case, but it was in the Benesek case from Maryland that the court decided to hear after having heard argument in the Gill case. And I think, you know, a lot of tea leaf readers thought, aha, they've taken this other case precisely so that they can decide the First Amendment question, which is not properly presented in the Gill case. But then, of course, they did not. Right, but um, I'm referring to the concurrence and uh, concurrence by Kagan that was cited in Beath. And then whether now the, the, the fact that now the, uh, they've acquired three more justices on their concurrence, whether they could use that in future gerrymandering cases to overturn gerrymandering cases in the future. I think this, is, this goes to your point before about whether it's a roadmap. Yeah, I, I just don't know. I, I don't know uh, who else. That, I always viewed that theory as something that was drawn, you know, they came up with that to try to pitch for Kennedy. I get a, get a view that Kennedy would, you know, would accept. And, you know, now that he, uh, you know, will be gone from the court after July 31st, uh, I don't know if there are any other takers for that. Just not something I've paid attention to one way or the other. Other questions? Down here. Hold it way down here. I'm calling her on check from. I'm calling her on check from the Commonwealth Foundation in Pennsylvania, and I'm just wondering. I don't know if this was within your guys' you know, knowledge base, but the Janus decision. Do you see any long, like wider implications of that in terms of you know with the free rider and labor piece? Will it have implications for collective bargaining? You know, people being able to opt out if they work in the public sector just to not be within the collective bargaining unit? That I, I just can't tell you. I, you know, I, I, I can't tell you. I mean, I don't know that there will be anybody else who would be able to negotiate besides the union. Um, uh, and, it, and it seems to me that it would kind of decrease the union's leverage in getting stuff. But I, I, can't, I couldn't tell you if there'd be I, some sort of competing base that people would be able to negotiate on there. I don't think they would be able to. I thought that they, the union's the exclusive representative, even if uh, 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 they're a poor union with fewer members. Other questions? Yeah, down here. Let's let's go with this other mic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's try this one. Okay. All right. Okay. Hello. All right. Um, uh, it's a little bit off topic, but, uh, President Trump said before, uh, oh, sorry, Kyle Qualls, uh, I'm with the Globe Post, uh, President Trump said before, uh, he started interviewing for the Supreme Court vacancy that he wouldn't ask, uh, the candidates, uh, their opinions on Roe v. Wade. He said something, uh, to the effect of it's like, uh, a personal matter. Do you agree that opinions on landmark Supreme Court cases are personal matters for a potential Supreme Court justice? 
I think the hard thing here is that the president himself in 2016 said, you know, that I will appoint two or if I get to appoint two or three more justices, they will be pro-life and Roe versus Wade will be overturned. And so um, you've got that statement out there. And so, you know, I think it's definitely appropriate that the president doesn't ask a nominee necessarily about, you know, any particular case or something like that. But I do think what you will see in these hearings is very much the argument that, look, the president said that, you know, and Judge Kavanaugh, you're going to potentially hold the swing seat on abortion. So what do you think about Planned Parenthood versus Casey? Um, are you distancing yourself from the president's 2016 remarks or not? And I think that's a tough question for him. He can say, look, I haven't studied or something like that. But I think the senators are going to say, well, go go ahead and study. Read all the briefs. You know, there's an argument. You can listen to the argument. Tell us what you do. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, I suspect that will be a, a big line of inquiry. I've always, you know, I've, uh, the reason I'm at a big firm is so that I can always talk to somebody else about ethical questions. And I've, I've never understood exactly the line uh, of how much you can say as a judicial candidate about a case. I think probably the safest thing you can do is just talk about what kind of analysis, how you would think about it, um, rather than give a bottom line answer. But uh, I've, I've never paid that much attention to exact the parameters of what is called the Ginsburg rule about, you know, not answering uh, questions on st- subjects that may come <coughs> before you. I will say, though, that I, in my experience and from what I hear that, uh, you know, it's generally a good idea for people who are vetting candidates not to ask them about particular opinions because one thing they can ask you is, well, what did they talk to you about? And so uh, it's my understanding that they generally keep, they talk to you more about uh, modes of analysis rather than particular opinions. And I think it's been that way for a long time. Right. But just on that, I mean, I think there's a big distinction between asking someone, what do you think about X, which may come before the court or maybe a pending case? And what do you think about Y, some historical case from 25 years ago, like Planned Parenthood versus Casey? I think it's widely understood that, you know, and almost every nominee has said Brown versus Board of Education was rightly decided. Um, and the one nominee that didn't faced a, you know, very painful consequence as a result. And one can debate whether or not that was appropriate and fair or not. But I think at this point, that ship has sailed about those historical cases. Justice Scalia was asked whether Marbury versus Madison was rightly decided, and he declined to take a position on it. (laughs) Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you for going over time for today's session. And please join me in thanking our panelists.